0: Last week we heard about a fiery ordeal and that we would be reviled. That's the good life? That's what Peter says. Because really, the good life is in between all of that. The good life is in 1 Peter 2 where we're called as believers, the chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now we're talking. That's the good life, isn't it? Isn't that amazing? That we're called out of darkness into Christ's glorious light. That we were once not a people and now we are a people of God. That's the good life. We have a shepherd and a guardian of our souls, it says in chapter 2. We're blessed, it says in chapter 3. We're saved, it says in chapter 3. Christ made us alive. Oh, that's the good life. It says in chapter 4. What we looked at last week, that the spirit of glory and of God rests on us. It's amazing. Our souls are in the hands of a faithful creator, it says in chapter 4, verse 19. Could your soul be in any better hands? That is the good life. So yes, we are aliens and strangers. We're distressed. We're intimidated. We're slandered. We're suffering. We're looking forward to, if we haven't already been through fiery ordeals, and we will and are reviled. We will be and are reviled. And in the midst of all of that, our souls are in the hands of the God of the universe. And I have to stop and say that if that's not, if you're not saved, if you have not repented and given your life to Christ, none of that applies to you. And I would want that to apply to you tonight. Tonight. You need to repent and give your life to Christ and then what opens up is the doorway to all of that, to the good life. There is no promise of a good life outside of that. There's a promise of a hard life even if you are saved and Peter's pretty good at articulating that. And Peter is heavenly minded and he wants us heavenly minded. In the midst of the difficulties of this life, Peter constantly in this letter continually raises our perspective above the details and all of this all of his descriptions lead to and from the church and this section of first peter is talking about the church salvation gives you entry into the church you're a part of the church if you're saved and if you're saved we get to enjoy fellowship service involvement in the church not only for others but we're the recipient of all of that that is the good life the church is The good life. If you haven't enjoyed that yet, you're not involved enough yet. And that's what Peter um, has been talking about. And all of this is not distant knowledge for Peter, the author of this letter, the author of um, this book that we're studying. Peter had vivid experiences with Christ in the context of the church. And in Matthew chapter 16, I know this is familiar to you. I just want to highlight for you. This is Peter and Jesus talking. It's the first time that Christ talks about the church when he's here on earth. He, and he said to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, Simon Peter, the guy who wrote the letter we're going through, answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I... His church will build. The church is always growing. My church, establishing that it's God's church. He is the head of the church. And the gates of hell will never prevail against it. That was a conversation between Christ and Peter. Christ is the head of the church. He's the architect. He's the builder. He's the owner. He's the Lord. He created it. He gets to make the rules. It's his And Peter knows this. It's it's by Christ and it's for Christ. And we have an obligation to see church through that frame. It's his church, and certainly Peter did. The interaction with Peter in Matthew 16 was epic. Christ was talking about something that didn't exist on this earth yet. But he had another interaction with Peter that I think is equally instructive for context tonight, and that's in John chapter 21. And in John chapter 21, starting in verse 15, it's the classic passage where Jesus asks Peter three times a question. Anybody know what the question is? Do you love me? Okay, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my lambs. Jesus said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, what? Shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Jesus says a third time, Simon, son of John, what did he ask him? Do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him in the third time, do you love me? And and Peter said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Three times, Jesus establishes for Peter that the way you will demonstrate your love for me is to take care of my people. Tend my sheep. It's kind of wild to think about that where Jesus defines what love for Christ looks like for a leader in the church, and the way he defines it is, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. Christ loves you and I so much that he gave his life for us, and then he established the church for our benefit, and then he put into the church leadership who are to demonstrate their love for Christ by their care for you and me. That was established on earth by Christ before the church um, came into being with Peter. And by the way, John 21 goes on. The next couple verses tells another part of the story that you might find interesting, equally important to give context to what we're going to look at tonight. Because Jesus, right after talking about, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Tend my sheep, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep immediately says, um, To Peter, truly, truly, I say to you that when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish. You had total freedom. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. You will be in handcuffs. Jesus is predicting that he's going to be arrested. He will no longer have freedom of movement. And they will bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, he said this signifying, by what kind of death Peter would glorify God? And when he had spoken this, he said, follow me. Pretty wild, isn't it? This is your life. It's going to end badly. That's the good life, follow me. And Peter did. The Bible doesn't say more about how Peter died, but if you've ever read the book uh, or part of the book, Fox's Book of Martyrs, I highly recommend it, by the way. But Fox Fox's Book of Martyrs, um, tells the story how Peter was crucified in Rome by Nero. There's not, no details. There's all kinds of um, um, stories out there about how he died. But what we do know is that he was arrested, he suffered, and he died. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Peter knows all of this. He knows that it's coming. He knows that it's Christ's church He's going to build it. The gates of hell will never prevail against it. This life is going to be hard. He is eventually going to be imprisoned and killed. All of that in his mind, along with, if you love me, tend my sheep. And we come to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, all of that is wrapped into that word, Therefore. I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears... You will receive the unfading crown of glory. I have the great privilege of walking you through this passage tonight. It's a short passage and it's packed, but we'll move through it pretty quickly. It's packed and it's profound. Let's start with the word exhort. Therefore, I exhort. That's the same word that Peter pretty much, or pretty much the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2.11 when he says, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts. Remember that message from Mark? Enough is enough. I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts. There's an urgency, a clarity, a rush To one side of the other, he's exhorting them, he's calling for them, he's summoning them, he's beseeching them, he's entreating them. Whatever you want to say, he is trying to get their attention. I exhort you, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. You understand that Peter was a witness of the sufferings of Christ, right? He walked with Christ. He watched all of that. He was a player in the drama that is recorded in the Bible and not in a great way. And then he saw that Christ rose again. And it says, also a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. What does that mean? Well, this is classic Peter. Before he goes through a very practical presentation of leadership in the church, he elevates everybody's perspective that he is a fellow partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. And that's the exact same wording that's used by Paul in Romans chapter 8. What is the glory that is to be revealed? Well, in in Romans 8, verse 18, it says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, you hear a theme, more suffering. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. And Paul goes on to define that. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also would be set free from slavery, to slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of God. Amen? That's our future. If you're saved. But until that day, We have the church. A taste of heaven on this sick and dying earth. The church is given for our joy, for our service, for our expression of love for God and for God's people. It's here for our accountability. The church is a steadfast anchor in the midst of everything going on as was prayed um, during our music time. Whatever's going on in the world, the church is Christ's. It is being built, it can't be stopped, and it will never fall between now and eternity. The church is an institution designed and created by God, and what Christ established while he was on earth, he put into play in in Acts chapter 2. And who preached the sermon on that first day? Peter. This guy is everywhere. He's in the middle of everything. And as with every other human institution, like family and government, Christ delegates authority over that human institution to frail and imperfect men. You see, there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. God created the church. He designs the leadership. He makes the rules. And we follow his rules. It's his church. And he's delegated oversight of the local church to elders and pastors. And this short passage provides some interesting clarity about elders in the church. The elders among us, it says. And it's important to make some observation before we jump into really the heart of this passage to explain what... Um, Peter is referencing here and why we do it the way we do it even here at Grace Community Church. This is a very profound couple of words. I exhort the elders among you. That phrase, the elders among you, is packed with meaning. First of all, that word elder is the same word as pastor. There is no distinction in the Bible between an elder and a pastor. Pastor. Some of you call me Pastor Hamilton, makes me uncomfortable. I don't know why, it's biblical. I'm not used to being called that. I'm not a pastor, I'm just an elder. No, according to the Bible, an elder is a pastor and a pastor is an elder. It's very important to understand that. We have a cultural difference a little bit here in America where we call accountants um, elders and the real guys are pastors. Bible doesn't make that distinction that elders are pastors, pastors are elders. The qualification for an elder or a pastor is identical. You must, is how 1 Peter 3 and Titus 1 describes it. There is no difference in qualification. There is no difference in function between any elders and pastors. I am expected to do in the church what any other pastor or elder does in the church. There is definitely a different level of time commitment. And there is a difference in influence. But the bottom line is elders are pastors, pastors are elders. There is no difference in qualification or function. All of that must line up in every man who who is to be called an elder. The other thing that's pretty profound here is that it says the elders among you. And and this is very important. Elders are um, uh, chosen, selected from, and serve among you and I. They don't serve from a distance. You can't live in Nevada and be an elder in a church in California. That's not biblical. Biblical leadership in the church is among the church, attends the church all the time, sometimes seven days a week. Okay, They do not and they cannot lead from a distance. And the other thing that's profound here is the word elder is plural. Do you see that? The elder is among you. It was customary and biblical to have a plurality of elders. A church is complete with one elder. There's no doubt about that. Titus 1 makes that point. But the church, in most cases, um, is more effectively led by a plurality of elders. Okay? So there's three things there. The elders among you. Elders are pastors. Pastors are elders. Same qualification, same function. Among you, elders... Must be rubbing fur with the other sheep. Can I say it that way? We're going to hear a lot about sheep tonight. They are to be among us, okay. And the third thing is that it's very um, it's biblical to have a plurality, a group of elders to help shepherd the flock of God. Okay. So with that, Peter addresses two issues now that we're going to deal with the rest of the way through here. One is Peter addresses the function of an elder and pastor. And the second thing is the motivation of an elder or a pastor. And the function pretty straightforward. You can see it here in verse 2. Um, and, and it just jumps out at you. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. There's two descriptions there of what elders do. Shepherd the flock of God. And this goes right back to John 21. Remember, if you love me, do what? Tend my sheep. You love me, tend my sheep. If you love me, shepherd my sheep. That is, I have to believe that as Peter is writing this, that is in his, in the background. He remembers that Christ talking to him as a leader of the church. That the way he expressed his love for Christ was to shepherd the church. If you can turn in Ezekiel chapter thirty-four, and I thought of a number of ways of ways to define what shepherding is, but I think the best way is to read a. Scary passage to you. Ezekiel chapter 34, or at least it scares me. There's part of this passage that I read about a year ago in preparing to teach somewhere and it scared me so much I became personally urgent about getting Grace Church back open. That's how scary this passage is. It's profound. It's from the God of the universe, the head of the church, and how he evaluates His shepherds, his under-shepherds. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat, the shepherds, eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat, Sheep without feeding the flock, those who are sickly you have not strengthened, the diseased you have not healed, the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back. And that's what hit me a year ago. We were all scattered, weren't we? The church was scattered. The scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost, but with force and with severity you have dominated them. They are scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they become food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. And there was no one to search um, or seek for them. He goes on. Therefore, you shepherds. Hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field, for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding my sheep. So, so the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. Pretty severe, isn't it? That's heavy duty. There's a number of things going on in there. The one that should jump out at you is the word my he calls his people, my people, nine times in those verses. You see, you and I belong to the great shepherd, even in the church. Acts twenty twenty eight in a conversation Paul's having with the elders from Ephesus, he makes this point. He says, shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He owns it. It also says in there, Three times that the shepherds, the elders, were to hear the word of the Lord. That reminds anybody who aspires to spiritual leadership that you never step out of the learning process. You never step out of the submission to God's word. And then he says six times to feed the flock. Completely parallel with John 21. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Feed them. And he wants them to keep the flock together, to protect and to guard them, to strengthen the sickly, heal the disease, bind up the broken, bring back the scattered, and to seek the lost. That is what shepherding is. That's a pretty stark picture of what shepherding is. So what is oversight? Remember, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. Well, oversight means to look upon, to look over to observe, to examine, to watch. Do you feel like you're being watched? If you're in the church, you are. That's what elders are supposed to do. That's what pastors are supposed to do. Acts twenty twenty eight commands the elders to be on guard for yourself and for all the flock. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says the elders keep watch over your soul, over my soul, as those who will give an account. That's what oversight is. Shepherding and oversight. What does an elder do? What does a pastor do? He says it in very simple language here. The shepherds of the church, the elders and pastors, are to feed, guide, help, warn, and watch. That's the function. Now he jumps into the motivation. He jumps into the motivation. Love for Christ As established in John 21, is the ultimate motivation for anybody who wants to be in ministry or in leadership in in the church. If you love me, what? Tend my sheep. Peter wants to expose what that looks like by diving into motivations a little bit deeper. He lays out three wrong motivations compared to three right motivations. He says, exercising oversight not under compulsion. I'm in verse 2 not under compulsion, but voluntary. There's the first pairing. According to the will of God. And then not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, verse 3, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but providing to be examples to the flock. So here's what he does. He says, we're going to look at good spiritual leadership compared to ungodly spiritual leadership. It's leadership under compulsion versus voluntary or willing leadership. It's leadership for shameful or sordid gain versus eager leadership. And then there's domineering or controlling leadership versus leadership by example. And I'm sure you can imagine which one, which set of motivations are godly and which are not. But we'll make that clear as we go. But Paul's diving into an issue here that's really difficult. It's called motivations. On the surface, motivations are completely unknown, completely unknowable for human beings. You can do something nice for somebody else, and there's no way for me or anyone else to know why you did that. On the flip side, you can do something really mean to somebody, and neither I nor anybody else watching can really understand. We can identify what you just did, but we don't really understand why. Motivations are are difficult. Those of you that don't know, I'm an accountant. Um, I'm a forensic accountant. And I deal with fraud. In fact, I have been so immersed in a fraud case this week, I just looked up and realized it's Friday. I don't know what happened to this week. Um, I deal with fraud quite a bit. And the common law definition of fraud is interesting. It's The definition is intentional misrepresentation of material fact that's relied upon to the detriment of the victim. Why am I telling you this? Because I love what I do and I want to (laughs) know. There's five elements to that definition. All five of those elements have to be proven in court. I'll say the definition again. Intentional, there's the first element. Misrepresentation, there's the second. Of material fact. That's relied upon to the detriment um, or the loss of the victim. I've spent all week, I spent a good part of my career proving those last four elements. You know what I can never prove? Intent. In fact, when I go to court, if I get on the stand and I go to court quite a bit, if I get on the stand and say, not only did that person do it, but they intended to do it, I will be removed from the court, my testimony disallowed, no one is allowed to testify that somebody intended to do anything because that is the exclusive purview of the jury. And by the way, that's why most fraud cases will never get filed. Because the prosecutors know the most difficult, maybe the most impossible thing you will ever try to prove is what? Intent. Motivation. Did that person really mean to do it? So I spent a lot of time on those those last four. In fact, did that this week, and yes, he did it. I don't know if he intended it. I don't want to get in trouble. The case I'm working on right now. But those four are my world. The, the line that I can't cross is to talk about motivations. That is why motivations are so difficult. Only two people can know what motives really are, in any action. And I'm going to get very personal. In the moment of an action, good or bad, there's only two people that know what your motivation is. One is you, right? And even that's a little sketchy. (laughs) That's subject to all kinds of self-deception. You know, I've run across some characters where they have the utter inability in any level to know or care about motivations, they're known as sociopaths and psychopaths. They do what they do, but that's extreme. Some of us think we know what our motivations are. The Bible says that we are easily deceived in even evaluating our own motivations. The Bible says 12 times in the New Testament. Um, it's the simplest command. It's repeated over and over. Do not be deceived. It was even in one of the songs we sang tonight. This suggests that you and I can be deceived, even in evaluating our own motives. Obadiah talks about the arrogance of our hearts deceiving us. Deuteronomy 11.6 says, Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve gods, other gods and worship them. You see, being deceived even in evaluating your own motives has tremendous consequence. So I said there's two people that might in the moment know what your motivations are. You might be one of them, but I'll tell you definitely who the person is who knows your motivations and who's that. God knows. God knows. In fact, in, in, in perfection and through his omniscience, he knows everything. You think you're hiding your actions from the Lord. You aren't. In fact, he knows your entire heart. He knows your motivations. And for some of us, we would quake to think that he might be on the jury because he'd get it right. He knows motivations. Hebrews 4.12 talks about the power of the word of God, that it is able to judge the intentions of the heart. The word of God is able to judge your motives and my motives. Luke 16, talking about the Pharisees in verse 15, Jesus says to them, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your hearts. Proverbs sixteen two says, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. Amen? We all think we're clean. But the Lord weighs the motives. That indicates not only does he know them, but he weighs them. 1 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The one who examines me is the Lord. The Lord will both bring to light, the things hidden in the darkness, and disclose the motives of men's hearts. Are you scared yet? I am. The Lord knows. It's called the fear of the Lord, by the way, in a good way. You and I answer to an all-knowing God. He judges the intentions and the motives of our heart. He knows instantly. You might know your motives instantly. Everyone knows your motives eventually. Pure motives are proven over a long time. That's why you've heard the phrase, time and truth go hand in hand. A life of fidelity, consistency, and integrity prove pure motives. Ungodly, wicked motives are demonstrated by a failure to finish well. Actions eventually expose motives. And Peter goes right to the deepest core of the evaluation of spiritual leadership when he starts talking about motives. So with that in mind, let's look at the contrasts in motivations for ministry, for spiritual leadership. The first, the first motivation comparison he makes is compulsion compared to voluntary, it says, according to the will of God. What are we talking about here? Well, compulsion means by constraint, pressure, obligation, a lack of desire. This is pastors and elders who are there under compulsion. Peter says that is not good. It is wrong. Okay? And why does he say that? Well, 1 Timothy 3 lays out the qualifications of an elder, and the first sentence lays out the gateway qualification that is so important and it is so passed over by some churches. It says this, it is a trustworthy statement, if a man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Why does God say that voluntary leadership is according to God's will? Because it's the gateway qualification. A man goes into the pastorate, goes into ministry, becomes an elder, not out of compulsion, but voluntarily. They desire the work. They aspire and desire the, not the office, but the work. And this is according to God's will. You see, in Acts 20, 28, which I've quoted three times now, it's a pretty important verse. It says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. If you aspire to be an elder or a pastor, do you understand that the Holy Spirit is the one who will point you to that ministry? And the gateway, I get asked all the time, how do I know I'm called to ministry? How do I know, I mean, I think I want to be a pastor or an elder. Do you desire the work? That is the first qualification. Qualification. 1 Corinthians 9, Paul addresses this issue of compulsion versus um, voluntary. He says in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 9, For I preach the gospel. I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Wait a minute. Didn't we just hear that you're not supposed to be under compulsion? Anybody confused? Good, because I'm going to solve that confusion. He does it in the next verse. For I do this voluntarily. If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. What's Peter's point? An elder or a pastor is compelled by love for Christ, for his church, and for his people to do the work of the ministry. We preach Christ and him crucified. That's under compulsion. However, entry into that role needs to be voluntary. Once you're there, it's a it's a it's a compulsion. A man who is forced or compelled to take on the role of pastor or elder will end up not doing that role. We've seen it over and over. Churches all over. They don't come to meetings, they don't pursue ministry opportunity, they fade away in function and qualifications and they just fade away. Their motivation eventually becomes obvious. They were ne- never really into it. And a man um, who no longer wants to serve should not be forced to for that reason. It's not good for the church. What does voluntary look like? Well, somebody motivated um, by, uh, as, as a willing leader is joyful, he's industrious, he does hard work, he's effective, that's what it looks like. So that's the first contrast. Leadership under compulsion versus voluntary leadership. The second contrast is not for sordid gain, it says in verse 2, but with eagerness. And those two things seem like they don't go together. The first two was compulsion versus voluntary. That makes sense, doesn't it? Sordid gain and eager? Doesn't, didn't um, make sense to me right away, but I, I think I can help you sort that out. Sorted gain, your, your translation may say shameful. That's a great translation. It means um, for, gain, for greed. Base is another, in the original language, what that means. For base gain. In other words, it is all for yourself. And I just thought of this um, sitting up here. I don't know what brought this to mind. But I was thinking that Peter walked and did ministry with Christ. Which means he also walked and did ministry with probably the greatest fake in all of history named who? Judas. And I have to think Judas must have been in his mind. Certainly as an illustration. Judas who sold it all for money. Betrayed Christ. Betrayed everything. Made his motivations evident all the way to the end. In Matthew 25, the first couple of verses, if you want to read, the bitter end of Judas. He is remorseful. He cries. He gives the money back. And then he goes, and I think it says it, um, well, it doesn't say it like this, but he um, crushes his brains at the bottom of a hill. He killed himself. Judas. There's a man who did ministry for sordid gain. And in 2 Peter 2, Paul identifies false prophets elders and pastors by saying their greed, in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Years ago, I read a book that stunned me because it, the, the stunning part of it was it was by a secular author, a, a spiritual cynic who also happened to be an amazing historian. Some of you may know of William Manchester. He wrote the definitive three-volume um, uh, series on uh, Churchill. He wrote American Caesar, which was a biography of um, Douglas MacArthur. He wrote a, a biography of John F. Kennedy, and he's written books on several battles in World War II, a phenomenal um, historian and a complete cynic. And in 1992, he wrote a book called A World Lit Only by Fire. A World Lit Only by Fire and he perhaps unwittingly wrote a several hundred page book describing what happens when spiritual leadership untethers from the head of the church and becomes a political entity motivated by sordid, shameful, and immoral gain. It is a an amazing book. It is about a 400 page illustration of what Peter is saying here About leadership that is for sordid gain. He writes about the period of history from the end of the Roman Empire um, to the Renaissance and the Reformation. It's a little over a thousand years, and it is in that period where the Catholic Church ruled the world. The book is, among other things, um, a description of evil, ungodly, um, shameful leadership and the effects and impact that had on people. It describes the length and the excesses and the immorality and depravity of leadership in the church. They called themselves priests and pastors. And it's during this period that the church went completely secular and the motivation became evident. It details the incredible difficulties and the, and the tyranny imposed on, on the world, really, most of what we know about the Catholic Church today didn't exist before this 1,000-year period. It exists today. What am I talking about? That's when priests began dressing differently than the lay people. Why? They wanted to be separate. It's not in the Bible. The history of the popes during this period, I had no idea till I read this book. I mean, it's full of immorality, debauchery, murder, and their personal accumulation of immense wealth and political power. They ruled the world, and that's not in the Bible. They introduced a a concept called penance during this period. Penance was a way um, uh, to, through your external acts to prove repentance through tears, fasting, self-imposed punishment, self-flagellation, avoiding certain foods... This is specifically not only not biblical, but all of it is prohibited in the Bible. And penance led to indulgences. What are indulgences? Well, indulgences are buying forgiveness, prayers, and access to the Bible. If you're buying, that means you're the buyer. Who's the seller? The priests, the pastors the leadership of the church, they would not even open the Bible until enough money had been raised. They would not um, um, give absolution or whatever they do. I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not that familiar with the Catholic Church. I don't want to say it wrong. This also led to the concept of confession, that priests now became the dispensers of God's grace. You know that's not in the Bible, right? That is not the role of an elder or a pastor. For a price, they would be dispensers of God's grace. Money, political power, that's not in the Bible. Forgiveness in the Bible is free. It's God's grace. It's a gift from God, not an elder or a pastor. Celibacy was implemented during this period. The celibacy of the pastorate. And the widespread practice after that was that clergy would maintain... Multiple mistresses, convents became houses of ill repute. The priest paid uh, the bishop a regular tax. And that tax was calculated depending on how many women he was living with and how many children they had had together. If if the priest paid, all was forgiven and ignored. Is that in the Bible? Anywhere? This is a, a story of spiritual leadership Motivated by shameful, sordid gain. And I reach back in history, talk about Judas, I talk about the Catholic Church, but you all know, unfortunately, sadly, you don't have to go that far back to find examples of this, do you? So the book records what happens <clears throat> under leadership like that shameful gain. The contrast in First Peter is eagerness. What does eagerness mean? Eagerness is a ready mind, prepared, zealous, anxious. So what is the contrast here? Well, here's the contrast that Peter's drawing. For sordid gain, I illustrate it rather dramatically with what happened in the Catholic Church, that they wouldn't lift a finger unless you paid money. Or you're going to give them political power. That's hesitation. You call up um, a priest and you say, my child is sick or my child just died. We We need to hear the word of God. What would come out of the priest's mouth? How much you got. That's contrasted with biblical spiritual leadership that is eager to jump in. There is no hesitation. There is no checking for anything um, that the elder or pastor is going to get out of it. There's no expectation or consideration of personal gain in any decision that's made in ministry. To put it in the in the great marketing term, you just do it. That's biblical, spiritual leadership. You don't do it for, for sordid gain, for self-promotion, for self-advancement. You do it because it needs to be done, and that's what you're called to do. You tend his sheep. 1 Peter uh, uh, 3, verse 15, he uses the same term, um, saying always being ready to make a defense. In other words, you're always in the starting gate. You're always in the starting blocks. All you need to know is where am I going? What do I need to do? That's entirely different than somebody who's laying back and waiting to find out what is in it for me. There's a, it's a being ready or zealous, eager, no hesitation. So, so that's the second contrast. Leadership for shameful gain versus eager leadership. The third contrast is domineering leadership versus leadership by example. And if I was to summarize this for you, basically what Peter is drawing a distinction between is leadership by do's and don'ts versus leadership by example. And when I say do's and don'ts, it's rules. It's do it my way. I'm going to tell you what to do. And in reality, biblical spiritual leadership, elders and pastors do not have that authority. The most authority we have is to tell you what who says, what God says. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what I want. It doesn't matter what I think is best for you. What matters is what does the word of God say. But domineering leadership, you know, in Mark chapter 10, um, Christ draws an amazing distinction. And he's talking about spiritual leadership. And he says in verse 42, calling them his disciples to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. That sounds like political leadership, doesn't it? It's really what it is. That's what political leadership does. But here it is in the church. And then he goes on verse 43. Jesus says it's not but it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your what? Anybody know? Servant. Servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all for even if the son of man did not for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the head of the church. He built it. He's building it. He owns it. He makes the rules, and he came to serve it. And he is the great shepherd. Spiritual leadership is servant leadership. If you want to be popular or powerful men, don't be an elder or a pastor. That's not what it's about. It's not to rule people. Christ used language to describe wicked spiritual leadership of his day that in today's world would be castigated as unloving and unchristian. There's no other context in which Christ uses or authorizes our, the, our use of such language. This is how seriously he takes it. I don't know if you're familiar with, with the seven woes against the Pharisees. Um, It'll curl your hair. It's in Matthew 23 if you want to read it later. I want to read the introduction to it. But Christ has a big problem with domineering leadership. With spiritual leaders who want to lord it over other people. Here's the description in verse 2 of Matthew 23. This is Jesus talking. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They haven't been authorized to do that. Therefore all... All that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. In other words, do what we say, not what we do. That's dominating leadership. For they say things and do not do. In verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Do you understand the picture there? Do you already see the contrast here? The biblical spiritual leadership doesn't lay burdens on men that Christ doesn't lay on them. Or burdens that are too difficult to bear. And if there are burdens on a man's shoulder, you lift a finger, you help. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They loved... They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. That is domineering leadership. That's not biblical, spiritual leadership. Limited authority is really difficult for proud men. Very, very difficult. And what Peter is saying here is that leadership in the church really has very limited authority. And that biblical, godly men qualified to be an elder have no problem with that limit on their authority. Ungodly men, men motivated in an ungodly way, really struggle with it and they're going to dominate their people. Third John 1 talks about a man named Diotrephes who loved to be first among them that's an elder in the church, a pastor. Paul, uh, uh, or John, calls him out publicly for eternity. And you can read on in that passage, it's Third John chapter 1, what he has to say about Diotrephes. Here's the contrast. That's the bad news. The good news is the kingdom of heaven exists on this earth in the church, and when it's led by good and godly spiritual leadership, you have spiritual leadership that is willing, eager, and good examples. That's it. And the, the word example here means um, a pattern. Hebrews thirteen seven says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, do what? Anybody know? Imitate their faith. There it is in one verse. The authority of an elder. Serve, lead, speak the word of God. And live life the right way so that others can understand what it looks like in real life. That's it. This is the do. It's not the talk. It's the spiritual leaders that actually practice what they preach. Not in perfection, but in pattern. That they practice what they preach in such a way that you and I can look at them and say, I'm going to follow them as they follow who? Christ. That's what it looks like. That's what spiritual leadership looks like. That's why Peter makes the point that the elders and the pastors rub fur with all the rest of the sheep. Why? I know that that makes some of you uncomfortable when I say that, but I'm going to go with it. That's the picture. We're sheep. And the shepherds rub fur with the sheep. Because we're also, the elders are also sheep. We're all sheep under the great shepherd, the good shepherd. And the only way that you can know how that sheep does it is if you're next to that sheep going through the same pastures. That's biblical spiritual leadership. Philippians three seventeen, Paul says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. That word pattern is the word example. 2 Thessalonians 3, I love this passage. Listen to this. Um, This talks about the example of making life decisions for no other reason than to provide an example for other people. In other words, spiritual leadership will make decisions to not do some things that they want to do simply because they want to be a good example. Or they make decisions to do things that they otherwise might not do because they want to serve you and I. That's service. Verse 7 of Second Thessalonians 3, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. Both, but with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you, not because we don't have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. That's the sacrifice of leadership. That's what Peter's talking about. The contrast between domineering leadership, do what we say, do it the way we say it, versus this is what the word of God says, follow me as I follow Christ. So there's two kinds of leadership in the church, in churches, leadership that is coerced, self-serving, and domineering. You ever been to a church like that? Then there's leadership that is willing, eager to serve, and has deep integrity on a level where you can follow them and know that you're following Christ. Again, not in perfection, but in pattern. Christ is the head of the church. He's going to expose that first kind of leadership. And he's going to honor the second. 1 Peter 5, verse 4, and we'll finish with this. 1 Peter 5, 4 says, When the chief shepherd appears you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And you say, wow, I want to be an elder because I want that unfading crown of glory. Here's what's so interesting about that. It kind of looks like Peter's telling the elders, come on, get your game on. Get your game on. And if you do it right, there's, there's a reward. Doesn't it look like that? But even in this phrase, Peter's saying, you are no better, no different than any of the other sheep. Why do I say that? What's interesting here is that an elder is not rewarded with anything other than what all of us are looking forward to. Again, Peter lifts our perspective here at the end to the eternal. An elder or a non-elder has a great hope of the unfading crown of glory. What is it? Well, in James 1.12, it says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he's been approved... He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It doesn't say to the pastors who love him, doesn't say to the elders who love him, it says to all. Revelation 2, the church at Smyrna, talking about enormous tribulation and poverty. The, the, at the end of that, John says, or God says to the church at Smyrna, "Be faithful until death, and I will give you the what?" What do you think? A crown of life. The same thing, same phrase that's talked about in 1 Peter 5, 4. 2 Timothy 4, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. This is Paul writing to a young pastor. In the future, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Wow, Paul's special. He gets a crown of righteousness, right? No, it goes, well, he does, but it goes on to say, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You want the crown of righteousness, the crown of life? Love his appearing. You don't have to be an elder, you don't have to be a pastor. The, the incredible truth here is that none of this is just for elders and pa- um, pastors and apostles, it's the same reward we all have access to through the grace of God. There is no gain for an elder. There should be no sordid gain. There should be no shameful gain. There should be no expectation that elders and pastors are first-class citizens. The work is done for the love of Christ and the advancement of his kingdom. That is all. That is the reward. There aren't two classes of citizens in the kingdom of heaven and there aren't two classes of citizens on this earth. And we all start in the same place, dead in our trespasses and sins. And whether we're Elders or pastors, we all end up in the same place, in the kingdom of heaven, purely by the grace of God. And in between, the start and the finish line, some are pastors, some are elders, some are not. But as Luke talked about a couple weeks ago in First Peter 4, what First Peter talked about is we're all in the church, we all, we all have a different role, a different function, In advancing the kingdom of God. What a great salvation. What a great hope. Peter puts it all in that context. And until that happens. The church is God's gift to believers. The church is the good life. I hope you understand that. I hope you enjoy that. The church is his kingdom on earth. Until we join his kingdom in heaven. This is the center. Of the good life on this earth. The church. The church is a daily reminder of what Christ has done for us and his love for us, and it's his his ongoing grace in our life. We need to be thankful for the church. We need to be thankful for good biblical spiritual leadership. I hope you've heard the weight of that work and the weight of accountability for that work. There's no doubt about that. But while all of that is accepted voluntarily and eagerly, it's a weight nevertheless. Pray for Mark. Pray for Pastor John. You know, I grew up here at Grace Church and I watched the elders. I used to take the bus down Roscoe to come to Grace Church on Thursday nights to go to elder meetings. I was one of those guys. I admired so many of the elders. I watched them. I was taught by them, encouraged by them, challenged, helped, confronted. I could name them. It's a long list. And I still am. And so are you. I'm forever... Grateful, and I feel the weight of responsibility of that investment to pass along in whatever role I might have in the church. And I know you feel the same way. That's how church works. And it's a tremendous legacy also. You know, uh, Pastor John's birthday is tomorrow. Not that you should all um, mob him with birthday greetings or anything. Um, But for over 50 years, to be able to look back and say, I know the motivations of that man. He's finishing well. There's a man who came in um, voluntarily. He demonstrates eager leadership, and he is an example. That's what Peter's talking about. Let me wrap up with two things. I want to talk to two groups of people here, just as we wrap up. First of all, those of you who aspire to be an elder and a pastor, and I know there's several of you in here, here's what I would tell you and I think you probably picked this up, you need to pay close attention to your life and to your doctrine. Hear the word of God. Remember that from Ezekiel 34? Don't ever forget that. Pay close attention to your doctrine. Hear the word of God. And then check and guard your motivations. If they're improper, they will be exposed. Don't do it. If they are proper, you have the potential for great impact and influence on the kingdom of God, not the potential for fame, fortune, or power. You need to remember that. Impact and influence of spiritual leadership is driven by and defined by a faithful life of fidelity to the word of God and integrity. Understand the weight of accountability of what you think you desire and what you aspire to. And go for it. The church needs you. The church needs good, biblical, spiritual leadership. For the rest of you, rest of us, who don't aspire to be a pastor or an elder, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your soul. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Hopefully you see that the command to elders is to shepherd and oversee, but implicit in that is a command for all of us to be shepherded and to be watched, to be overseen. Do you see that? The implication is that we must be shepherded and overseen and we're to make that easy, not difficult. Be watched. Be accountable. The other thing I would ask is pray for your leaders, that they would be on guard for themselves And for all the church, for all the flock. And then all of you aren't going to be a Grace Church forever. In fact, in this age group, many of you are actually preparing to go. You're all going to Florida, right? Isn't that where everybody's going? (laughs) Everyone's going to Florida, wherever you go. Peter just gave us a clinic on how to evaluate a church. Pick well, choose well. What does their doctrinal statement say? Very important, but what is their spiritual leadership like? What 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 are their pastors and elders like? Do their lives demonstrate a motivation that's good, godly, and biblical? And then Mark's going to pick up on this, but I just want to hit this real quick. The next verse in uh, 1 Peter 5 you younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's the great application of the first four verses and to dig into that deeper, you got to come back. Let me close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for um, this church. Thank you for your church. Lord, we humbly acknowledge that it is your church, that you built it, that you are building it, that you are protecting and guarding it, and that nothing, including hell, will ever prevail against it. Lord, we cannot thank you enough for that. Lord, we also recognize that you have put frail and imperfect men in leadership over that church. We pray for those men, that you would help them, guard them, protect them, as they guard and protect themselves and all the flock. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.